0: Hi Mark, thanks for being with me. Thank you, Will. When I was doing research on your story, I came across this great quote that you shared from E.B. White. You say it's one of your favorite life quotes and I'm gonna read it out and then I'll ask you a question about it. Quote, every morning I awake torn between a desire to save the world and an inclination to savor it. This makes it hard to plan the day, but if we forget to savor the world. What possible reason do we have for saving it? In a way, the savoring must come first. How do you savor life?
1: I have four grandchildren, and uh, one of them who is a week old. Um, So
0: (laughs) Congratulations.
1: uh, Yeah, thank you. So that part's quite simple. And when I was young, I grew up in Utah and I grew up really close to the mountains. I spent a lot of time in the Wasatch and you went to ranges and there was always something really, really special about that for me. For me though, the importance of that quote is it gives us a starting place with everybody because oftentimes we start with people with where we differ, but whoever you talk to, no matter what their ideology, there's things they love about this planet that they want to make sure are around her for future generations. So I put that in at the beginning of our climate advocate training because I wanted to start with that we have things in common with everybody. I had a conversation with Barry Goldwater's son one time, and Barry Goldwater was one of the first really super conservative candidates for president in the 1960s. I grew up in a liberal household, and he said my dad used to take me on hikes all the time, and he used to walk me up to trees and he'd say, son, this tree has more character than most of the people you're going to meet in your life. (laughs) <laughs> I just think that that's a, a good point to start with people is, is that people have things they love about this beautiful, clean, pristine planet that they want to make sure are around for future generations. And I think that can always be our starting point with people.
0: That's wonderful. I'm sure a lot of that went into your decision to go into climate change as as a path for yourself When did you first realize, I'm sure it was a continuous process, but can you trace it back to a specific moment when you realized you wanted to devote yourself to fighting climate change?
1: Prior to that, I spent years trying to ignore it. I was convinced that there was a problem as big as climate change or global warming, then certainly the smart, connected, effective people would do something about it. The thing that was most troublesome for me about looking about what was happening with climate change... I hate it when animals lose habitat. And so if I would read the paper or see a magazine that would talk about animals losing habitat, I would just flip the page. I I didn't want to know how bad it was. And so I really spent a long time trying to ignore this. And then my friend, Marshall Saunders, started Citizens Climate Lobby. He and I had worked on some poverty issues and some other things. And he kept telling me, I need you to come run this for me. And I said, Marshall, this sounds like the dumbest idea I've ever heard. You said that you want to work on climate change and Congress at the same time. And he said, yeah, this is going to be great. I'm like, you picked the two most screwed up things on the planet and you want to combine them. But I told him I would take a six-month leave of absence for my company and see if I could help him. I was working in the, how do you have people be more effective in their companies at the time? I was working for an organization called Mission Control, and my main clients were NASA and Boeing. So I was working with their top-level engineers and scientists. And so Marshall and I took our first trip to Washington, D.C. together. That was in 2009. The House was debating a 1,400-page bill called Waxman-Markey. We spent our first day on the Hill telling people that that was too complicated. We had a simpler, more elegant solution. And everybody told us, why don't you just leave us alone? And <laughs> so, so that was really troubling for me. And the worst meeting was we were meeting with an aide for Senator Kerry, and halfway through the meeting, she closed her notebook, which anybody who's paying attention says they're done, right? So we yeah. just talk louder and faster. And that really bothered me. And I remembered in one of the most tired voices I've ever heard, she said, I'm just trying to pass a bill. And we weren't interested in what she had to say. We were interested in what we wanted to tell her. So I, that was a come-to-yourself moment that night, struggling. I got up the next morning with Marshall and I said, Marshall, that was terrible. We can't be worse than that. How about we stop doing what we're doing? And all the work that I've done of having people be successful in organizations has to do with trying to get in other people's world and find out what we have in common with them. Can we just abandon this whole, that's a bad bill, we have a better bill, and see if we can go in and find something in common with people? And every meeting that day was electric. And that scared the crap out of me because I didn't want to take on a problem like this. I wanted to do my piece and then go back to earning enough money to send three kids through college. But I realized we might be onto something. And if you have something and it might work, you kind of owe it to your kids to say, you know, hey, this might work. And that was the moment where I said, I can't can't walk away from this because we might be successful. And if you have a chance of success with something like climate change, you have to apply yourself.
0: Just to bounce off of that, just so I can understand it a little better, <clears throat> you went into your initial meetings with aides with this very specific agenda about passing a particular bill, but you found that that wasn't received very well on the Hill, and so you sort of backed up and then the next day you took a more collaborative approach, is that how you would term it?
1: Yeah, I would call it more collaborative, it was really saying can we connect with this human being rather than trying to convince them that their idea is a bad idea and we have a better idea? Do you know anybody likes hearing that anyway? I mean, I don't like I don't like people telling me I've got it wrong. And I haven't found many people are like, oh, thank you, finally pointed out how stupid I am. Have we just said, let's just see, can we connect with a human being? And those meetings were, every one of them, amazing.
0: I read an article that referenced of a volunteer named Jessica Langerman. Mm. And she had this really formational experience as a volunteer with CCL. She was in a meeting with an aide, much like you were in, in your early days. And she was initially sitting back and letting her teammates take the lead. But she felt that same frustration that it wasn't being received, that it wasn't clicking with the person on the other end. So she took charge and made this argument. She said, even if there's only a 1% chance that our kids will be negatively affected by global warming, doesn't it make sense to take out an insurance policy? And then she said, to my surprise, the aide was completely silent. He held my gaze for several moments and then murmured quietly to himself, time to buy insurance. He wrote down the words. And then she talked about how, how excited she felt about that moment. Stepping back from CCL and just talking about climate advocacy in general, how can people inspire others to care about climate? How can, in your words, people connect with these human beings across the table or next to us on this important issue?
1: It's such a good question. It's so important and so relevant at this particular moment. The easy thing for all of us to do is to identify what we don't like about other people or other things. That's easy. Anybody can do it. And the internet has made it worse, right? What Jessica was pointing to there is one human being connecting with another human being. You've got to get your attention off yourself and over there with another person and see if you can understand their world from their perspective. And I like that she also managed the word risk management. One of our early advisory board members, George Schultz, died two weeks ago. And that's exactly what he said is, you have to take an insurance policy. I love that way of thinking about it, just in terms of managing risk. Don't you want to just make sure there's some insurance in the system? But the broader question you ask is, how do you engage people? How do you connect with them? We have spent, oh gosh, 12 years trying to teach people how to communicate better on climate change. We're trying to bring along conservatives and liberals. And those people use different vocabularies. And there's something called moral foundation theory that talks about that they see different views. They actually see a different world. So we spent a lot of time trying to train people to communicate. And what we found out was the thing that works best was always getting people to be better listeners. Can you stop yourself for a second? Can you ask a couple of questions? Can you genuinely be curious in the other person? Not fake curiosity, because that doesn't work, but can you actually be interested where You would be interested enough that there might be a quiet moment like between Jessica and that aide where they would just sit there and kind of listen to a moment. We are really working hard to just try and expand the muscle called being curious about other people.
0: I wanted to turn to your relationship with Marshall Saunders because Mm -hmm. I came across his obituary and he died not long ago, a little over a year ago. It seems like he was sort of the driving influence behind you. Moving into CCL, you know, what was it about Marshall or about his vision that coaxed you away from the private sector and into advocacy work with CCL?
1: This was the last thing I wanted to do. <laughs> you know, it was like, I'm like Marshall. I feel like I've been pretty successful over the years in business. So this sounds like a hundred percent crash and burn deal. But yeah. he's a he's a really persistent guy. And so we would have breakfast every couple of weeks. And he would bring me a little bit more information each time. And the pit in my stomach got bigger and bigger because something that I hoped other people were fixing, I came to understand was worse than I thought, way worse, and that they weren't fixing it. That's what had me say, I'm going to take a six-month leave of absence from mission control, which is what I did, and said, I'll see if I can help my part. And then I can just go back to making money, right? <laughs>
0: right. I think a lot of our listeners are grappling with how exactly they can get involved with climate change. Obviously, Marshall had a tremendous influence on you. But was there something specific about the nonprofit work and the nature of nonprofit advocacy that drew you into CCL over other paths? Maybe you decided to run for office in San Diego or, you know, even federal office, because you wanted to make a difference on climate, or maybe you wanted to start a a climate startup or or some private organization that could develop solutions. What was it about the nature of the nonprofit work that drew you in beyond what Marshall wanted for you?
1: There wasn't. I never intended to work in the nonprofit world. And while I had thought about running for office, my thought was always, why would you put your family through that? I mean, people are going to say the worst things about you. And I could probably shake it off but my kids having to listen to that stuff. So Mm. I quickly, when I considered running for office... Said, no, I don't think so. I don't want to, I don't want to put my kids through that. It really was this particular entity that drew me in. The idea sounded so exciting of setting up a system that could actually work. So I really did never intend to work in the nonprofit world. I was paying three kids college tuition. I was planning <laughs> to make sure I could get that as undamaged as possible, but there was something about that. And then that moment on the hill completely transformed things for me where if you have a problem this big and you have a shot at success. You have to take it, right?
0: I'm sure that's the case with a lot of climate leaders in the nonprofit world. They care deeply about the issue, and then they have a mentor or some other vision that drives them to nonprofit work, not because nonprofit work is the best or the most lucrative financially, but because it feels right. Knowing what you know now about the nature of nonprofit work and advocacy work, Do you recommend that sort of path for listeners who want to make the biggest possible difference on climate change? For listeners who want to make the biggest difference and take the biggest chunk out of that issue, is nonprofit work the way to go?
1: It can be. There's a political scientist at Johns Hopkins named Hari Han. Professor Han makes a distinction between transactional and transformational advocacy. In transactional advocacy, someone just asks you to do something and you do it. In transformational advocacy, there's two things that simultaneously are 100% important to you. One is the success of the mission, but also it's the other people. We can do a lot more with a powerful community than we can as individuals. And so one of my points would be, look for something that gives you a community where you and that group of people can do something together. Because yes, individuals can make a difference, but like-minded group of people who are also committed to each other's success, I believe that's where the real leverage starts.
0: That's a great insight. Dealing with global challenges like climate, you can certainly simplify the paths into certain buckets like nonprofit work, running for office. But if you start with that concept of a community, And you seek out places where you feel welcome, where you feel represented, and sort of let the work develop from that goal. That may actually be the better path than saying, nonprofit work is the best work for my skills and interests. Mm. I wanted to shift to covering what CCL aims for and Mm. the issue of advocating for federal policy. Do you believe that of all the possible solutions to climate change, I mean, there's the laundry list. Do you believe that federal policy and a carbon fee and dividend specifically, which is what CCL advocates for, is the best solution to climate change?
1: Yes, there's a lot of things that need to happen, a lot of things. But the National Academy of Sciences just published their report two weeks ago saying what needs to happen to deal with climate change. And their first recommendation was a strong carbon tax. Fee and dividend is a kind of hybrid carbon tax. The IPCC has been saying that for years. The nice thing now is you're seeing support from all kinds of communities. The Chamber of Commerce said they want a market-based mechanism. That's a soft way of saying carbon tax. The Business Roundtable, those are the CEOs of the largest companies say they want a national carbon tax. 3,500 economists signed a statement, the largest statement in the history of U.S. economists arguing for essentially a fee with the money rebated to households. That included every living Fed chair, Janet Yellen that included 27 Nobel laureates. So amongst experts, there's broad consensus. But why federal? Well, there's a lot of the world who looks to us. There are a lot of countries that already price carbon. But if we're going to do it in a meaningful way, so many countries say, we'll do it when the US does it. So it's not just about US emissions, because China, India, Russia have got to dramatically reduce theirs. They'll follow our lead. That's why our work has always been on federal. It's not just about U.S. emissions. It's about the impact that it has on the rest of the world of making sure that they do the same thing.
0: On the topic of federal climate policy, perhaps there's a listener who says, you know what, Mark, I agree with you. This is really important, but perhaps the more effective path is for me to run for office and be the change from within the system. And you mentioned some of the drawbacks you see in your mind uh, of running for federal office. What would you tell a listener who believes in the importance of of a robust carbon fee and dividend policy or robust federal climate policy in general, and who wants to run for federal office instead of doing advocacy work or something along those lines?
1: I'd say do it. The most important thing is, is that people are doing something. The first time we met with Secretary of State Schultz, when we were leaving the office, I'm so, he said, I'm so happy to hear what you're doing because you're actually doing something. Most people just talk about it. So I think anything that gets people into action is a good thing. Doing something is actually what's going to you know, move things, not talking about it, not wringing our hands, not complaining to people we agree with, but actually doing something. So if someone wanted to run for office and they they wanted to run on doing something significant about climate change, I'd say do it. We have a broad public discourse that we need to move. And so if you have more voices that are amplifying that by running for office, great.
0: Do you have any insight on what sorts of qualities lend themselves well to running for office with climate in mind? You have a bit of a front row view to the political dynamics in D.C. and with climate policy in particular. Have you found that there is a certain archetype of congressmen or senators that people could sort of mold themselves around or take lessons from to be effective in climate policy?
1: We meet with every member of the House and Senate every year, and it's mostly the staff, but sometimes it's the actual member. The members, whether you agree with them or not, usually are fairly charismatic. (laughs) You you come away from the meeting and go, oh, I'm not surprised they get elected now. (laughs) Sometimes that's not so obvious when they get into their 80s, like when so many of the senators hang on for so long. But there is a a certain amount of charisma. And the other thing that I think is always surprising is they seem smarter and better informed than you would get the impression. The impression that you get from television and from the newspaper is usually other people criticizing them and the things they did badly. But it's not just the member of the aides in Congress are phenomenal. They're really good listeners they ask really, really good questions. They're way more informed, including the members, than you would, you would be surprised. So I think for anybody who considers themselves to be an informed person who feels like they have some charisma, I think that's the easy path. But I don't think we should limit it to that. It's important that people act on their vision. And if anybody who has a big commitment, a big vision on climate change, and they think running for office could be an, an avenue for them to express it, I'd say go for it. We want people to be working on, on their vision, their passion, and particularly if it's climate change, it would be awesome if 10,000 people ran for Congress in the next round. <laughs> climate change was each one of their primary issues.
0: I love that. Getting information about important issues is such an important task to understanding them and acting on them, but it can be very challenging. And that's why I created Boulder was to give people a place where they can not necessarily understand the issues themselves, but understand the path that they can take toward that. Where do people start to understand these issues in a thorough and meaningful way?
1: They could use our website and our resources, citizensclimatelobby.org. What we've tried to do is set up all the tools you would need so that no matter Anything anybody wanted to ask you about, well, what if China doesn't do something? Well, what's the difference between this and the Clean Power Plan? That what we've got is simple, easy to internalize resources that give people everything they would need if they're interested in the avenue we're working on, which is what scientists and economists tell us, is is we got to get the price right. So I'm sure there's other resources like that. Ours is just set up so you don't have to be a scientist to understand it. You know, it's like me. (laughs) I'm not a scientist, I'm not an economist, but I feel like I can speak with some level of confidence about what we're doing. But I want to just step back to Boulder for a second. In 2011, Rob Willers published a paper called Apocalypse Soon, Dire Messages Are Counterproductive on Global Warming. He found some interesting things from his study. Here's what his study showed. If you only give people the gloom and doom regarding climate change then it doesn't do anything for them. And they usually say things to themselves like, this doesn't sound right. My friend that says the planet just goes through natural cycles makes a lot more sense to me. However, if you give people all the gloom and doom, and then you add a solution, the solution is what brings them along. And so that same person who said, I don't think you know what we're talking about, says to themselves, oh, I finally met somebody who understands the issue. So it's absolutely crucial that what we're all doing is giving people solutions to lead with because that's actually what brings people along. If we, if what we want to do is bring people along, it's crucial that we lead with solutions and solutions that could be related to by the person you're talking to.
0: I certainly appreciate you saying that. I think anyone who takes that philosophy, what it's myself or anyone in this space, I think is doing good work. So mm. I, that's a great point. On, on the topic of CCL and how you lead it. I wanted to delve a little bit into that. I, I've probably not sold enough so far how distinguished your leadership has been at CCL because your bio leads with this great figure that your organization has basically doubled or tripled in size every year since you came on board a little over a decade ago. What is your key to growing a nonprofit and what sorts of leadership lessons have you drawn from that journey?
1: I think what we've learned is is that leadership comes in all shapes and sizes and that there's a lot of people who are going to do things differently than you do. You have to have room for people to do it the way they do it, whether you like their style or not. The crucial thing is, are they making something happen? And if they make something happen, then let them do that. It's been really fun. Up until the last couple of years, we never looked at a resume. What would happen is somebody would do something so extraordinary that it would demand that we hired them. So, for instance, there's a gentleman named Ricky Bradley. He built CCL University and CCL Community, which is essentially our internal communication tool, as a volunteer. And so mm-hmm. we were like, okay, we better hire that. We had a great chance to work with volunteers for years where we would see the amazing things that they did, all using different kinds of style. And then those are the people that we initially hired. And then, you know, working with people is always complicated, right? There's people who like working with each other and don't like working with each other. So you're you're always at work on that. But I think the first thing we learned was that leadership wasn't going to come in one form. We needed to look to see how it occurred person by person by person.
0: And for people who want to build a similar movement maybe they want to build a group that advocates for climate policy on a state level how do they go about empowering volunteers and building an organization that allows for these different leadership styles to mesh
1: one thing we decided early on is that we would trust volunteers we weren't going to wait for them to prove their trust we were going to start with that we trusted them And I think that gave people a lot of safety to feel like they could go and take chances and make mistakes. That wasn't going to make us angry. We have over 600 chapters around the world and about 500 of those are in the U.S. Those chapters usually have one or two group leaders. They're all volunteers. And we let them know you're trusted to run your chapter. I think that gives them a lot of freedom to know that they can do it the way they do it. They can be themselves and that they don't have to fit some particular mold.
0: To summarize that point, I think this is this is really crucial. Going back to your concept of a community and how you said search for a community, it sounds like if there is a golden ticket to doing good work in climate, it is building a community that is built around trust and built around a recognition of everyone's mutual interests, mutual desires, and at the same time their unique skills and experiences. Does that sound like a fair characterization? Yeah. Wonderful. So far, we've talked about a lot of the long-term acts that people can take. They can work for a nonprofit or even create one themselves. I wanted to touch on some of the everyday acts that people can take, because I think a lot of our listeners do want to structure their lives around climate or around sustainable development or something in this space. But I'm sure there are others who can't really commit to that, but they want to help solve climate change in the more immediate term, like in, like in the span of a single day. So for those kinds of people, what do you recommend they do?
1: Act on what they're passionate about. The little things people do, do matter. Eating less meat, buying locally, using renewable energy. I ride my bike to work. But that's great for me because I feel better, right? I'm like (laughs) crabby when I get in the car, and I'm never crabby on the bicycle.
0: (laughs) And in San Diego, you you really have no excuse not to. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's right, I have no no excuse. I'm so happy when the office opens again. But the other thing is, what Congress tells us is they don't hear from people enough. So you don't need to join one of our chapters and go lobby, even though I would recommend it because it'll blow your mind how much fun it is than you think. I mean, most people think lobby yucky but they're thinking of a paid model. This is a volunteer model. And in a virtual world, it's easier to do so than it's ever been. Just call your member of the House, call your two senators and tell them this is important. They say they just don't hear from enough people. And particularly any of your listeners, who I think most of them probably are young. If you could figure out how to join one of our lobby events, it's really, really interesting the dynamic that happens with the congressional offices when young people are there. The members and their staff change. They know this is the future. If they wanted to, if this sounded like maybe a little bit interesting, they could try it out. And I think they'd be surprised what it's like when you actually are there meeting with a member of Congress and their staff. It looks so distant. You know, it's Washington, it's over there, it's not here. But you have access to it if you'll ask for it. And then we only have one rule in our organization, and that is when you meet with an elected official the basis of that meeting has to be admiration, respect, and gratitude for their public service. Not everybody can always get there for a meeting, so they shouldn't go. But if you can, and then find out what happens, it can actually be pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Certainly, that is a compelling take on the nature of advocacy. And I think a lot of people would benefit from setting up a meeting with a representative if they're if they're in a nonprofit organization or they're on the hill. But let's consider for a second the people who can't even make it there. Maybe they're a full-time worker. They can only carve out a bit of time to maybe make a phone call on the weekend. And it goes to the representative's voicemail box. What do you tell those people who think that won't do much?
1: Yeah. So I think you have to make a choice about dealing with big problems. Do you say, I'm going to do something about this? Or do you say it's too big, it's too hard, there's nothing I can do about it? To me, cynicism is a example of complete moral laziness. And it is always easier to say, I can't do anything, it's too big, so I'm not going to do anything. And you could make that choice. But I think you want to make the choice, I'm going to do something. There's no way to know if it's going to work or not. We can't know that we're not omniscient right we don't have talk radio shows yet we haven't we haven't gained complete knowledge of the future of the universe but i think you always have to err on the side of i'm going to try and do something it might work so i know that that might be a little bit frustrating to say i'm going to call in the weekend it's only going to go to the switchboard they're going to take a message but they keep track of how many people call and write them and that gets in front of the members every day. We got 10 calls on this. We got 100 calls on this. We got this many emails. So the member may never see your particular message, but they will see the total number that came to them. And that's one of the ways they know what their constituents care about.
0: Absolutely. I loved how you you referred to cynicism and, and how it's not productive. If people can overcome those mental barriers and recognize that these are important issues that won't be solved unless people are working to solve them, then that's where the magic can happen. I wanted to move into a couple questions to wrap it up. Stepping back from the climate issue and looking more at a larger scale with global challenges in general, what do you tell people who want to change the world, who want to set out on this path of impact, but who just don't know where to get started or how to go about it?
1: Mm. I think it kind of goes back to what we were just saying a few minutes ago is find something to do. Look for an organization that you can work with that will leverage activities. But the most important thing is to start it to do something, you might do the wrong thing initially. But if you take the approach, I'm going to do something until I find the right thing for me, I think you will find the right thing for you. The most important thing is do something, reach out some way, contact somebody, call somebody, meet with somebody make sure you are asking yourself to stay in action on a regular basis.
0: Wonderful. I wanted to close with sort of a personal question. You said you have four young grandkids. If we solve climate change, if we achieve a carbon fee and dividend plan and we work global carbon emissions to reasonable levels, if we achieve what CCL and everyone else is setting out to achieve, what future do you think your grandkids will live in?
1: I mentioned at the beginning of the call that I spent a lot of time in the Wasatch and you went to mountains growing up. I live in Southern California and my kids really think nature is the beach. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember the first time taking them to Utah for a wedding. And we were walking by a stream and they did what I had done thousands of times, which was take their shoes off and walk through the cold water on slippery rocks. And they were so awed and wowed by it. That's what we want. Yes, a fee on carbon with the money coming back to households is one of the steps we need to take. But what we really want is to make sure that a beautiful, pristine planet is something that people can experience and love and embrace and get to connect with. And as Barry Goldwater's son said, stand next to trees and has a dad tell him how much character that particular tree has. So I really think that that's what we're trying to do is make sure that there's a beautiful beautiful planet for future generations to love.
0: That's perfect. I'll close with a quote from Marshall Saunders. I believe you quoted this in his obituary. He tells volunteers, quote, "You're a dream come true." And you said he leaves us knowing that we are working hard on our shared dreams and we will prevail. So that's, I think, a, a good way to put a bow on this talk. That was Mark Reynolds, ladies and gentlemen. Mark, thank you so very much for your time. And and we wish you all the very best in your work.
1: Thank you, Will. It was an absolute joy.